Hey, thanks so much for listening to Dissident Orthodoxy. We've got a great conversation on the way. A couple of things. If you like the show, you can support us on Apple Podcasts. Give us a rating and review. You can support us by telling a friend, sharing on social media, or you can support us for as little as a buck a month on patreon.com slash Casey Hobbs. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoy the conversation. All right, thank you for tuning into another episode of Dissident Orthodoxy. I'm Casey Hobbs. Today, I have a follow-up from last week uh, when we talked to Kenton Bartlett on psychedelics and use in therapy. Today, we're kind of continuing that conversation with Dave Barnard, and he is going to tell us uh, about his own experience and about, uh, we're going to kind of get into how psychedelics can influence institutions, uh, specifically the church, and um, how how we can kind of use um, psychedelics uh, or how that can inform um, societal change. So Dave, thanks for chatting with me today. Sure thing. Glad to be here. Thank you for inviting me to talk. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so first, give us some of your background. Um, some folks might know you from uh from some facebook or twitter uh <laughs> famousness um but i know that your background entails a lot more than that um so uh, tell us a bit about yourself sure yeah so um i'm um I'm a methodist pastor um been been a pastor since 2003 and um i have a phd in um homiletics and ethics from vanderbilt university um, and, uh, I've taught a little bit, I've taught in, in world religion and I've taught the Bible at, at a couple of local colleges. Um, and I'm currently in a master's program for clinical mental health. And I'm in my last year of that and doing my, doing my inter- internship currently. I do a lot of work with people who have, um, OCD, uh, religious OCD, scrupulosity, um, and, uh, and other kinds of things. I, I find that um sometimes surprisingly maybe not so surprisingly um some of the work that i've done um overlaps there yeah lot. so um yeah um uh, people come in especially um with all times with concerns about ethics or am i um am i blaspheming or doing something horrible um and and people don't understand like they use ocd like mm-hmm. a joke like mm-hmm. i'm a little ocd because i like to keep my pen straight or something but they don't they don't get OCD is actually very debilitating that I mean people can't leave the house mm. because they're doing rituals or something. So anyway, that's been um that's been a kind of a joy recently to kind of it's not a, it's I don't think of it as a vocation change. I think of it as a little bit of a, a broadening of of how I understand ministry and what I'm doing in the world. So yeah, right on. And so talking about psychedelics, obviously your interests uh are broad in in kind of how you define what it is that you do um but clearly psychedelics is a is a whole nother yeah (laughs) another animal of uh interest that's been a surprise Uh, (laughs) right so um yeah back in i guess it was probably 2016 um i was a few years into this uh church planning gig that I'm, i'm still uh, still in. Um, I started a church, which is really a network of house churches. 
2016, I was kind of struggling with like what what to do next. Um, I didn't really, I felt like the, the church, like the big C church, uh, was facing a lot of imminent crises. And by the way, this is before the election. Right. So, <laughs> uh, and and um, and I was just kind of figuring out like where do I fit in in this? What do I need to be doing? And um, I guess I, I don't wouldn't exactly characterize it as burnout, but I was really seeking discernment. I remember praying. I actually prayed for clarity and 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 vision. And the word that kind of came to me was vision quest. So I said, mm-hmm. God, I guess I need a vision quest. It's something that helped me figure out a uh, direction for my my ministry and and how that fits with the world. And um, I had expressed that desire to a couple of people. Anyway, someone sent me a flyer from Johns Hopkins. They were looking for someone to do um, psilocybin, so-called magic mushrooms. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they were looking for clergy. And this, they sent me this flyer like a joke, like, ha you should try this. Sure. And I just prayed that. So I was like... Okay, <laughs> yeah. and it was like the next day there it was wow so you can't I, get more vision quests than that you can't um so i um i contacted them at that point they were taking people outside of baltimore but then a couple of years later uh they called and they said hey we got you know, they found my name in a database i guess they said you had said you're interested we now have some money to for from a grant to Fly people here, would you still be interested? And I said, yes. That was July of 2018. Hmm. And then by, I went through screening. And then by September, I had my first uh, psilocybin session. And I had another one in October. That was part of the, the protocol. These are guided sessions. You know, you wear eye shades and you listen, you have a soundtrack. And it's meant to be an internal journey. So, I mean, I'm sure some of your listeners may know this, but this is like, a, this is not, taking mushrooms and go to a concert right you're using it for, <laughs> and they were investigating you know the spiritual aspects of this so you know i filled out a gazillion questionnaires and i um you know had had two uh two guides um who are really not really guides they're there to support you right so mm. they're not they're not telling you anything talking to you very much they're just there to help you with what you need and um yeah it was just a tremendously profound experience um spiritually psychologically um i felt like i'd had about six months of psychotherapy and in six hours Mm. and it was just a a life-changing kind of thing and so you know i was already moving in the direction of i've always been interested in neuroscience my father is a mental health counselor um so i was already moving kind of that direction and that just kind of accelerated uh i realized that um, I think the next century we're going to see just a different kind of uh, spirituality emerging from the wreckage of, <laughs> of the current religio politico whatever situation we're in, um, and I do I do think psychedelics are going to be part of that. And so um, I I really see this as you know what I would like to help the church do in the future is is understand psychedelic assisted therapy um uh, have come to a to a more nuanced and open understanding of of spirituality because i think a lot of there's still a lot of stigma Mm. um i i hope that there would be some things i could do to help bring that stigma down and help help people get the help they need because 
Um, Lord knows we need it. We're have, we have an epidemic of mental health crises right now, and I think that a lot of that, um, a lot of people are are not aware of how deep deep that problem is, and how and how it really holds us all back. I mean, I think about all the, you know, we've we've been in perpetual war for twenty years, mm -hmm. and so and veterans with PTSD have been one of the things that's driving the psychedelic renaissance, and and I I think that's probably not coincidental. I guess if that makes sense. I feel like that's part of this big shift that's happening. Anyway, that's yeah, that's a big overview. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, to kind of drill down into a couple of things you said, mm -hmm. and then we can get to really big, fifty thousand foot <laughs> uh, questions too. But with with OCD in particular, I know uh, probably with with the folks you're working with right now and just with laws, you're probably not able to right. <laughs> administer or even guide um, any of any of that. But where do you, what potential, I guess, do you see particular to OCD and you already connected it to the religious dimension and how, yeah, how our current understanding of religion, uh, particularly for those of us that come from the church, really has contributed a lot to to the clients you see so yeah so yeah connect those three for us sure absolutely well I, I think you know and as you as you kind of alluded to ocd is really just the most severe manifestation of i think church hurt in mm -hmm. a lot of ways now and i do think for for people who have ocd i will say that if it wasn't scrupulosity or spiritual hurt it would be something else mm. it would be contamination mm. or because ocd preys on our anxiety sure um now recognizing that that's you know that's the etiology of obsessive compulsive disorder the fact that there are institutions that also prey on mm. our anxiety <laughs> right is also a problem yeah right? so i mean they 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 benefit and and actually encourage some very problematic theology and um and it, it well it, i i think we see a lot of pushback against that these days people deconstructing or healing from church hurt and being very public about it. Um, so I would I would say these things are on, on a continuum, recognizing that people who have obsessive compulsive disorder have a, a, a an issue in their amygdala hmm. that can really only be fixed with conditioning and exposure and, and possibly psychedelic therapy. Now, but I, I also think people who don't have OCD, who also have religious anxiety, can benefit from this kind of same the same process yeah i mean is that connected is that yeah yeah i think, yeah. I think I mean, that connects it yeah so i do because i i feel it's important for me to make a distinction like like i said earlier ocd is a is a clinical it's a diagnosable disorder doesn't mean and i and i say that not to pathologize it because i do feel like we're all on a continuum like if you do a bell curve um, one of the things that irritates me is people using words like neurodiverse and neurotypical hmm. because that doesn't mean anything. Hmm. Like if you have a if you have a standard distribution, I'm going to fall on the OCD scale somewhere. Sure, right? It's just that I'm not going to be clinical. Mm -hmm. And so if you take you know like autism spectrum disorder, the, you know it used to be autism or not or autism Asperger's, and I would sure. say autism spectrum because there's a spectrum. It's just that you know we're talking about scales and everyone falls somewhere on some continuum. There's not really any anyone who is quote neurotypical mm. 
if you think, you know, one and a quarter people really need counseling at some point during their lives. Sure. Does that mean every, anyway, I just, yeah, I, think, yeah. I think we pathologize mental health problems and in, in a way that, that is not helpful. At the same time, I also want to say that people who are suffering with OCD aren't just rearranging their pens. Sure. Uh, I don't know how I got on that tangent, yeah. but I do think, I do think psychedelics have, have a potential for people who have severe anxiety to help them take a step back and, and do a little metacognition hmm. to understand their selves, the self differently and to reframe some of what terrifies them. I think that, that, that because of what psychedelics do with our fear and how, you know, in a way through a psychedelic, psychedelic experience, a lot of people learn how to, how to face fear and move through it and find something rewarding on the other side. Mm. I think that could be really, really helpful for folks with OCD. Yeah. Um, or any anxiety, you know, and everyone's anxious today. So right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's, uh, I was actually just talking to someone before I came over here to talk to you about how, about scrolling on phones and uh, oh. just, uh, yeah, I know everyone probably listening has the same, has a similar at least experience to me, but yeah, just find yourself, find myself scrolling endlessly and yeah. not even sure why I'm doing it. <laughs> yeah, well, and I, I think, and I think there are multiple reasons, right? And so that's one of the reasons it's such a, it's such a, um, a powerful drug mm. um, because some of us do it, sometimes we do it because we're bored. Mm. Sometimes we do it because we want to be distracted. Um, sometimes we do it because it's stimulating. It's giving us a little shot of dopamine. Oh, I learned something. Oh, that's interesting. Mm. You know? Um, so I think there are a variety. I think it's very, it, it can push a lot of different buttons, mm. which makes it a lot like smoking. Like if mm. you take a slow drag on a cigarette, you slow down. If you take a fast drag, you speed up. Because it's such a versatile drug, I think it makes it hard to resist. Hmm. And I think that's why a lot of us find social media and, and connectivity so difficult to regulate because it fulfills a lot of different needs. So yeah. I, I think if it were simple, if it was just one thing, we could, it would be easy Yeah, yeah. <laughs> to resist. Yeah. yeah. And the, I think even like the potentialities and the, I mean, that we can be, connected and plugged into what's happening all around the world and you know like the george floyd protests a couple of years ago i mean that, that can happen and obviously you talk about the 60s and um, all that like it happened with old media but yeah. yeah the acceleration of being connected obviously is um and it's it's interesting in this conversation that i'm not sure how we got to, the, <laughs> to this part but when we talk about connectivity and we talk about um, all this external um, and I think most of us know that there is a sort of trick in there and there's a false sense of connectedness that they can only go so far on a screen and only go so far on a social media platform. Yeah. But then this conversation too, I mean, we're talking about, about the that internal connection and and that having the potential to not just affect one person but to to actually yeah. grow out and and affect one thing that you mentioned 
I don't know, a month or two ago when we were talking over coffee was a reformation yeah. and kind of these cycles of reformation um, throughout history. So talk about kind of catches up to speed on that in this sure. conversation. Yeah. Well, so Phyllis Tickle um, wrote a book called The Great Emergence and she actually borrowed the term from somebody else, but she, I can't remember who, but she's talked about that we have these, they call the 500 year rummage sale. So like for some reason, every 500 years, we take all of our, all of the things that, that we value and we put them on the table and we're like, okay, what of this, what of this are we going to keep and what are we going to get rid of? And, and I think we're in one of those moments now. And, you know, she would say like, you know, the last time was in the 1500s, you know, we know technology helped take that off. That was the printing press. And then you had the, you know, the enlightenment and the reformation all at the same time because of the wide way that ideas circulated um just sort of there was an inflection point politically which allowed the possibility of all these different things mm. 500 years before that it's the schism between the east and the west church 500 years before that it's the fall of rome and the rise of islam anyway so you mm. kind of see these patterns um sure. 500 years before that you know this guy jesus is his thing mm. and the uh, destruction of the the temple and mm. the, the rise of rabbinic judaism so you have you know these these and again, maybe it may be cherry picking or sure, sure. tied up in a 500 year cycles, but it does feel very much like we're at a similar place as the 1500s where um, technology and ideas uh, and, you know, plagues, <laughs> all, everything kind of comes, comes together and society goes, all right, what are we going to, what are we going to value for the next hundred years? What are we going to, what are our foundational principles going to be? And I mean, that's why this age feels so fraught, I think, and why the political stakes feel so very high. Plus we're in, we are in an extinction. Like mm. this is the Anthropocene, you know, we, there are 90% uh, reduction in insects in some places. Uh, in my lifetime, we've lost a third of our birds. So we've got this environmental mm. thing hanging over us as well. So I, I feel like um, we're, we're at the, the commencement of one of these big cycles and uh, there's a lot on the table and i do feel like psychedelics are here for a reason uh i mean again this, uh, and it's funny because more i've talked to people who have have tried psychedelics they're, they're always say something like this is gonna sound crazy but right <laughs> and so i laugh because i feel like i, I hear myself saying that it's sure. crazy but <laughs> I feel like the mushrooms want something out of this business. <laughs> I feel like there is some there is something bigger than what we typically think of as society that is at work. That there that we as human beings, as a as a species, as an organism, uh, we are changing, and we are aware of that change, um, and there that we are connected with a lot of other cycles of change, and so that's kind of the. I'm, I'm taking a little yeah. further than Phyllis Tickle talked about, but I, I do feel like there's something spiritual about this moment that we're in um, that has some significance. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, I, I think it's interesting that you connected even like the conversations around deconstruction and um, it's sort of kind of, I have, I have my own kind of qualms with with that as being so I feel like with deconstruction I've 
I've written about this somewhere, is it can be become so self-focused in a in a sense of we're constantly critiquing our experience, our experience of the church right. and um and kind of painting with a broad brush that that is the church. So that is so that is the experience of the church. And obviously there's there's a lot to take from there and and with any of our lives, I mean, that's part of growing up, right? As we deconstruct what we learned and um part of growth. Right. Part of growth. And and then but then putting it in I think this larger context and you know you look at you look at the Reformation, uh, quote unquote Reformation, yeah. if there's multiples, so you know the Martin Luther Reformation. Oh, right. <laughs> um and yeah, there's good and bad that come with that. I mean it's I think we tend to look at like progress mm-hmm. and the enlightenment and say, oh, yeah. like we're continuing to progress, but right. yeah, that that's also, you can look at Luther as being starting kind of the rise of capitalism. And, right. and we see 500 years later where that comes in. Mm-hmm. Sure. Is that better than feudalism that he entered? <laughs> <I'm>... <Right. laughs> we're going back there real quick. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Lord, Lord Bezos and uh, Lord Zuckerberg, uh, <laughs> and the rest of us are just there. There, um, I feel like they're a lot more benevolent than than the ones and you know historically. There's, there's less benevolent. There's less disemboweling these days. I think that's, that's a plus <laughs> at this point, anyway. <laughs> we'll wait and see. Yeah, yeah. Less less state running. Uh, yeah. Right. Yeah. No, I think I think it's I think it's a good point. I I think it's it's definitely a mixed bag, right? Mm. I mean, um. It's it's change. We know it's change. Uh, we we hope it's growth, you know. And I, I and it depends which day you ask me. <laughs> like whether I think this is the dawning of the age of Aquarius or if I think we're so. And actually, uh, Joanna Macy um, talks about this. She says that really there's three narratives, and I, I don't think she's the first one. I think she's also born if mm-hmm. you love someone. But she, her work, she's a Buddhist um, uh, and an environmentalist. Um, and she says, like, there's three narratives. There's the um, there's the business as usual, there's the great unraveling, and then there's the great turning. Mm. And business as usual is like, okay, we can just keep doing what we're doing. We can, you know, keep continuing drawing oil from the ground and and uh, and living under capitalism. Everything's going to be peachy keen because mm. capitalism is going to save us, and or not save us, but is is continual progress, yeah. infinite growth. Right. And then there's the great unraveling, which is like what we're doing cannot last and we're we're going to hell on a handbasket. Mm-hmm. And there's both you know liberal and conservative versions yep. of that. Yep. Um and then there's the the counter narrative, which she holds out as the great turning, which is to acknowledge, yes, we have all these challenges facing us. Um, but but if you look through our history, there are people who rise to the challenge. And mm-hmm. and I do I feel like of when we have our choice of narratives, um, you have to choose the one that has hope, because uh, otherwise you lose automatically. It's like if I don't choose, if I choose not to hope, we're done. Yeah. <laughs> <You know? laughs> so uh, it may—I don't know if it's true—but you gotta. I mean, for me, it's gotta be a great turning. Mm. Um, as I said, it depends on the day that you ask me. Right. <laughs> but in a way, I feel like that's that's also very classically biblical right mm. it's the it's the binocular vision it's the prophetic 
you know, the, there's the kingdom of God and there's the judgment of God. And some, somehow holding those two together gives us a, a fuller picture of, of, you know, what we're facing. And anyway, yeah. yeah. Um, um, thinking as you're talking about, uh, you mentioned this biblical and thinking about just the experiences of the prophets, mm -hmm. um, actually, a uh, some probably some mutual friends, um, of ours, uh, Clay Farrington and Ross Frio has have a podcast called Armchair Theology, which is a, a fun listen. They go, they go through, um, through the Bible and not long ago they uh, one of whoever runs a Twitter account um posted a question like which biblical character do you think was was smoking pot and, <laughs> and, and as soon as I saw it I was like I think I'm pretty sure John was like not smoking pot he was like on mushrooms John, yes. John the Revelator Ezekiel Ezekiel yeah well and, and I mean I'll say what I you know when I had my session, I was like, oh, yeah, wheels within wheels. I got you, buddy. I know what you took all the odds. I makes sense. I'm with you. I get Ezekiel. I, I know I know the feeling. <laughs> so, um, no, I do say, and there's, uh, I haven't read, can't figure a guy's name suddenly. Uh, what was the immortality key? Or, anyway, he talks hmm. about, talks about potentially the presence of psychedelics in early Christian communities and hmm. that kind of stuff. And I, I, I haven't read it. Yeah. But, you know, I do think there are these long histories of people using substances, natural substances, for supernatural experiences. And just even recently, they found they found cannabis at, on a Jewish altar. Oh, wow. Did you, did you read about that? I didn't, know. So it wasn't, not the Temple in Jerusalem, but it was an archaeological dig. If you look it up, you can, you can Google search it, I'm sure. But they found cannabis mixed in with the other altar stuff that was being offered. So if you think about, okay, I'm going to go into this room, uh -huh. this incense and other smoke. Yeah. And, and I'm already also set and setting are yeah. very intentional. We have a ritualistic thing of darkness and light, mm. um, chanting. Um, you know, we, we even know that when we uh, sing or chant, our breath and our heartbeats get in sync. Mm. So we are becoming part of a larger organism when we participate in worship in these kinds of rituals. And, and I do think that, um, you know, natural, natural substances may have played a role in uh, how people have experienced God. Well, I know they have, but sure. specifically within the context of Christian worship, um, it's a possibility. Uh, I know it's certainly the case in indigenous cultures. Yeah, you know, ayahuasca, yeah I was going to ask about that. Yeah, I mean, yeah. and maybe give it a... a a little bit of that background and then yeah i wonder if we want to talk about an imagination for the future of the church where mm -hmm. mushrooms play a part or yeah yeah, yeah. well and, and one of the things i would say like so one of the things that mushrooms help unlock is stuff that people have known that you can do also without mushrooms mm -hmm. like meditation mm -hmm. like a lot of people who have these psychedelic experiences suddenly get turned on to buddhism and, and meditation we know like we have the neuroscience, we have the fMRIs showing brain changes in people who meditate, hmm. right? So prayer, meditation, these things, um, these things have biological components to their spiritual hmm. experience. Even things like breath work, 
you can have a psychedelic experience by changing how you breathe. Hmm. Um, now, I'm not saying that. I, I mean, I, I think there's a again. I think there's a continuum. Sure. On one end is definitely you ingest a mushroom or you have ayahuasca or something like that. On the other end, you have quote quote unquote natural. I mean, they're all natural, but you're yeah. you're doing things to your own body so that your brain gets in a different state. You're fasting. Hmm. You're going without sleep, right? Um, we know that these are things that that produce visions, and that's why people have done them. So, um, in some ways, I feel like like the stigma against using uh, a mushroom or what some people think of as a, as a quote unquote drug is a little bit hypocritical. Mm. When, when, when I go on a retreat, I am going into a deliberate state of altered consciousness. Mm. I'm not speaking sometimes like I'm going to do a silent retreat or I'm, I'm fasting or something, something along those lines. Yeah. Um, this is how we know we, we get into different states of consciousness and have mystical experiences. So, anyway. yeah, yeah, and I'm thinking two of the the Desert Fathers, <laughs> complete trips that they must have been on. Whether it was, like you said, whether it was just fasting or just being in the desert and and what that life does to you, um, or yeah. Yeah, going to these thin places mm. you know, where just the air is different, you know, where we are in different, we're in a different state of mind because we're in a different place. Um, you know, deserts, the desert's a magical place. Um, the ocean's a magical place. This is why we, you know, we changed, we changed our scenery. Yeah. Um, anyway, yeah. Mm. So then, like the big magical questions, the big like I said, 50,000 foot questions. Mm -hmm. Talk about just having an imagination for how particularly the institution of the church, but I'm sure if history is any indication, we'll, we'll diverge from that as well. But, <laughs> um, yeah. but with the church, I mean, let's say that tomorrow, you know, mushrooms are available, the particularly the natural medicines are available um how does that how does that change the church um, and then we'll go from there yeah well i think the first thing it does is it it puts a challenge on preachers and people who consider themselves spiritual leaders mm -hmm. because you have someone come to you who says I had a conversation with God the other day, <laughs> you know, yeah. and, and, you know, and that kind of language may not be uncommon in mm -hmm. among Pentecostal people, mm -hmm. for example, or among um, certain, uh, certain traditions. But I, I do think when you're talking about, you know, mushrooms or, or other kinds of things, you're talking about a qualitatively different kind of divine human encounter. So, um, so what is, what do preachers do with that? What do spiritual directors do with that? When people come to them and say, you know, um, I, I went for therapy um, for my PTSD and I met my ancestors hmm. and they <laughs> they told me this, you know, whatever. And I, I think so. I think spiritual leaders, pastors are going to have to get savvy enough to have these conversations with people. That's top mm -hmm. for me as a pastor, top of my concern. Sure. And my fear is that. Um, that pastors, especially, uh, well, we know this because we've already seen it, 
will say things like, you know, you don't need psychology, you just need Jesus. Mm. You don't need mental health care, you mm -hmm. just need more Jesus. Just mm -hmm. pray harder. Because they see mental health as competition. Sure. Obviously, I don't. That's why I'm doing both. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but but I feel like, um, and I feel like there will be people who have questions like, well, if I can just take a pill and meet God, why do I need to go to church? Mm -hmm. and, and my reply to that would be, that's not why I go to church. Yeah. You know, most people, they have spiritual experiences outside of church and they come to church to get a framework for it. Okay. Now that I've had this mystical experience, what do I do with it? How does it put me in community with other people? Yeah. Um, how do I live it out? Um, and, you know, and I think um, in some ways, what I, what would, would please me coming out of this would be is, is if we critiqued the idea that church is about having spiritual experiences, hmm. you know, I think, I think it can be, I think we need to have communal experiences and have spiritual experiences with other people, but I feel like so much emphasis has been placed on, I mean, this is why we have the contemporary Christian music that is so far oh away. Boy. It's like, yeah. okay, here's where the drum break is. Oh, yeah. here's the chord change. Oh, oh gosh. You know? <laughs> you know? and, and I'm, I'm saying this kind of tongue-in-cheek because I know, I know like that stuff, just like fasting and going to the desert, that stuff works. Sure, there's a ritual there's a, to that. Yeah. And so, but, but I also feel like sometimes that's why it feels a little shallow because mm. it's like, I'm just trying, I'm trying to get you to feel something. Yeah. And so that, and that again, comes back to the, I think one of the lessons of psychedelics is if you're chasing an experience, it's probably a bad thing. Mm. Um, I mean, not that experience yeah. is bad, but if like, I am really taking psychedelics so I can have a spiritual experience, um, then maybe, maybe you need to chill because, mm. Um, you know, Maria Sabina said, um, the medicine's inside you. Mm. So you're like, you're seeking for it out there somewhere. And the, the mushrooms just unlock what's already in you. And, uh, I, I think about like, how, like, what would that, how would that change the church? Mm. Right. And what kind of gift it would be if people started coming to church with this idea that, um, I'm not coming here to chase after an experience. I'm coming here because my experience has led me here. Yeah. You know? And like this is where I incarnate, you know, that why what I when my brain was in the universe, like it's a really about how what how I'm doing daily life with other people and how I um how I choose to shape this experience that I've I've been gifted with. Um anyway, so yeah. that's that's what I would hope for the church. Um and as it more people have these experiences that it would begin to shift the culture a little bit. Yeah. And the the word that comes to mind that Kent and I talked about last week was integration. Yeah. You know, it sounds to me like you're saying that the church body could be a place for integration totally. to happen. And that's that meaning making, particularly on the back end, but mm -hmm. preparation on the front end and um yeah. Yeah. Right, exactly. I mean, I think so when I again when I think about non-psychedelic experiences that have been very spiritually meaningful and that people often cite, like the birth of a child, mm. the death of a parent, um, th those are not things that happen in church. <laughs> sure, we go to church to help kind of frame those up, mm. and like and and that way, you know, when when a child is born, it's like, oh yeah, that whole incarnation business. 
the whole mm. Jesus in the manger business. I get it now, you know, in a different way than I did when I, before I was a parent and I understood it as a story. Yeah. You know? And um, I, I think, I think it gives us handles mm. on our experience. Um, yeah. Yeah. So we talked about things that would fall away and things that as we're examining them, as we're putting them into practice with, with whether it's a psychedelic experience or adding kind of a medicine into the life of, let's say the life of believers or the life of the congregation, however that, however that ends up. I feel like one thing that would fall away is this need for certainty is would be my the first thing that comes to my mind um and this is i think i'm going to talk about like a critique of the church going way back yeah steinbeck has this really great quote that's probably one of my favorites from from my favorite (laughs) um and and grapes of wrath so the reverend jim casey is giving sort of a sermon out of nowhere because he's this burnout preacher that occasionally goes into <laughs> goes into a sermon. Yeah. And but he talks about certainty and he says, he says, if I was God and uh someone came up to me and was certain about something, I'd throw their ass out of heaven. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And yeah. and yeah, I hear this for me as someone that maybe would classify myself at this point as kind of a disaffected but still religious still christian person um and trying to figure out even what that means um, yeah for me that's kind of the first thing that has that has fallen away for me is realizing and it's still in my body that 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 i have that need mm-hmm. which is probably why that quote will always resonate with me yeah, <laughs> And not to and not to pull it all the way back around to yeah. where we started, but yeah. that's actually one of the chief things about obsessive compulsive disorder mm. is a need for certainty. Mm. Um, in fact, they back in the Middle Ages they called it the doubting disease. Mm. Um, you know, um, and being able to tolerate uncertainty. Um, you know, did I turn the stove off? I'm not sure. Did I, <laughs> I probably turn the stove off? Uh-huh. And and so I, you know, I do think. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think that connects in a in a strange way. Um, yeah, and, and and trusting in in mystery, like I don't have to have this all figured out. Mm. I, I I will say I think I did come back from my own experience uh, with with a different kind of certainty, mm. which is um, you know, it, it, and it's something you know much more basic. Um, in my in my first experience, I, I share a little bit with you. I'm not going to detail my mm. whole trip report yeah <laughs> um you know one of the profound takeaways in my first experience was that i by pushing away negative emotions i was making myself unable to feel the good ones mm. so when i wouldn't acknowledge my disappointment i couldn't also then feel gratitude mm. and so to have a complete experience to feel those to feel the gratitude i needed to acknowledge that i, I had sadness and disappointment and um uh and, and that's something like if I just say it, it sounds so freaking cliche. Sure, sure. You know, <laughs> or if I say, you know, God really loves you. Mm. Yeah, okay, sure. You know, it's mm. but now I know that in my bones. Mm. Like 
I have I have an understanding that is deeper than semantic um, or even cognitive <laughs> kinds of stuff. Like I I I could have sat in the chair as a pa someone's pastor and say, you know, it's important to acknowledge your negative emotions so that you can feel the positive ones. I could sure. have said that a million times and I would not have understood it as deeply as I do now. Mm. So, you know, I would say like some things I'm more certain about mm. um, and others just don't really matter a whole lot, you know, like a homo usios, you know, or, you know, even, even some of the, I mean, a lot of the doctrinal stuff, which is just like this, this is, this is right. what I people. Yeah. This is really anyway. Mm. Yeah, yeah, and I, I wonder, I wonder, is the church ready for this? Mm -hmm. And do we even have, do we have language that can capture this? I mean, again, not to paint my experience as the entirety, but. I went to school with a lot of now pastors and most of them really great people, you know, mm -hmm. but do they have the language to, to enter these spaces? I mean, if they picked it up in years since <laughs> being <laughs> close to them, that's great. But yeah, I think that's a good question. Uh, I don't really know. I mean, I think it, again, I, I would, I would probably bump back to the question, what, what's the purpose of an institution? Mm. And oftentimes, you know, we, and I don't want to bash institutions. I'm yeah. not, I'm not an anarchist. And mm. I, I think that part of the way that human beings get work done is we create institutions. Sure. Like we organize, that's our superpower. That's what we have that other animals don't is that we socially organize, we use language to organize. So, you know, I don't know. Um, I think, I think, I think it's a legit question. Are churches, is the church, would have a capacity to do institutions? Is there a container for this kind of mystical language or does, you know, by its nature, does it um, move outside of institutions and, and break containers? Um, and I don't really know. I, I do think, um, you know, the, the thing that, that I love about the gospel, about, mm -hmm. about the Bible, about the message of, of Christianity is that there's a seed in it that resists being turned into a, a, a tool of exploitation. Hmm. Now, it doesn't mean that you know, Christianity is often used for exploitation, yeah. often used to pop, prop up power structures, but there's a seed in it which means you can't really do that with integrity or faithfully before it starts crumbling. Hmm. Um, and, and maybe that's the way these mystical experiences function. Um, I, so, yeah, I, I don't know. <laughs> I, I do think... And that's what I think that's one of the questions that we'll have to kind of figure out in this in this um, whatever at 500 year cycle we're in is um, can we make institutions that align with um, the, the values of freedom and independence and you know self definition um, or or do they inevitably tend towards authoritarian kinds yeah. of control. Um, so anyway, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> it seems to me as well, if if this is going to be part of the change and if this is sort of the way that you see forward for the church, 
sort of surviving, re being remade, being reformed, mm -hmm. then let's say you're back in your old teaching roles. Mm -hmm. You're teaching hermeneutics, homiletics. Um, you're teaching up and coming pastors and, and church leaders. What of this, what of this do they need to know? What of this do they, and when I say no, I mean, it's always the default to know it mentally and, and to know to be able to write a good paper on on this. But yeah. what do they need to know? What do we all need to know in our bones, whether we're young church leaders or yeah, yeah. And <laughs> how do we get there? That's a, that's a powerful <laughs> question. I think, I mean, and not not to go too neurosciencey on this. I think, um, I, I think one of the fundamental truths that I took out of my own psychedelic experience is that um i am a story that i am telling myself mm. and um and that we there's a lot of we there's a lot of us up in here in my brain <laughs> competing um motivations competing storylines um you know and one day i may wake up predisposed to this story another day that story but that the sense of that i have of myself um is a mental phenomenon and it's it's created it's an, it's an illusion in a lot of ways um this idea that there's a, a boundary between me and the rest of the universe mm -hmm. you know that i stop at my skin there's part of my brain telling me no you stop at your skin this mm -hmm. is you right and i'm just i'm about to go really meta here yeah but like of all the cells in my body the human ones are in the minority Hmm. You know, I'm a planet for, you know, my gut flora and for all the bacteria on my skin. And if we were to count up all the different cells, the human ones are in the minority. I'm a host for all these other creatures. Right? Hmm. And, and that's just a very different way of thinking about the self. Yeah. I think, you know, I'm this thing I think of as me is made up of uh, cultural influences, you know, epigenetics, stories that my ancestors told, stories in the Bible. Um you know, and that I'm assembling this and I have this illusion that it's in real time mm. and it's all happening about a quarter of a second after, <laughs> after <laughs> I see things. Right. Yeah. Um, so, um, I think if there's one thing I would want, um, pastors to know, and again, this is, it's going to sound cliche. Mm -hmm. It's the kind of thing I could have said, Sure. <laughs> you are a story, mm. you know, that the story is part of what's important. And, and we who, who decide we're going to be keepers of the story. And, you know, that's a, that's a really profound responsibility. Um, and to tell the story in a way that is true, that does not simply manipulate other people to put me in a better, better, better position of power, mm. which is what white male preachers have typically done. Sure. Um, that, is, that is a real challenge and a, and a real calling um and i think i think that taking that seriously and doing some of the hard work to tease out you know how how do i keep this story and keep it with integrity is is a yeah i think that's the real stuff yeah <laughs> i think you're right i think you're right well i know you and I can continue this conversation over a coffee, okay. and, and I want to keep uh, keep that going. 
And I'm, I so appreciate the time today um, and, and getting this recorded. Uh, Dave and I were just talking last week and a lot of what he said came out in our conversation. I said, can we, can we just sit down and <laughs> put a microphone next to us? So, um, so yeah, I'm really grateful for that. Can you give us a little plug for things you're working on that are public and that we can sure i know you've got a, a great website with your work so sure yeah i'm a little bit behind on that one but <laughs> so yeah i mean if anyone wants to read my stuff can go to dave barnhart uh b-a-r-n-h-a-r-t dot net um i have a couple of books out um one is called church Com comes home which is about house churches um how to, how to create house churches i do think um i think networked uh smaller hyper local churches are are something that's i don't know if it's the way of the future mm -hmm. like people like but i do think they're going to play a much bigger role uh going forward um uh, i also have a self-published book which gosh now it seems like it's ages ago mm -hmm. but um called god shows no partiality which is about the um the early church and kind of the radical egalitarian uh communities that they formed um, yeah, so that's, that's it. I'll be doing some stuff coming up here, probably on faith and mental health, because that's important to me. Hmm. Um, and I just got back from a sabbatical this summer where I was in Europe, kind of wrestling with some of these big questions. And I'll probably do a devotional, uh, series on that, you know, probably Advent kind of yeah. stuff. Anyway, that's what I'm working on. Awesome. Awesome. Well, thanks again. And we'll, uh, hopefully grab you uh, to record again at some point, right. but Thanks, appreciate Casey. the time. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. And that's the show. Thank you so much for listening to Dissident Orthodoxy. We have some great content for you coming up soon. In the meantime, go on to Apple Podcasts, give us a rating and review, tell a friend, support us for as little as a buck a month on patreon.com slash Casey Hobbs. Thanks so much. We'll talk to you soon.